Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6, if you would, please. Mark chapter 6. Have you ever been surprised when someone didn't put their trust in you? I mean, you know yourself. You know your history. You're a trustworthy person. How kind you have been to other people and and even taking care of people in difficulty, and yet and they don't even ask for your help. They're afraid to trust you because they're too afraid of what you can do to them, what what you will do to them. And the problem there is that they don't really know you. They don't know that you are a trustworthy person, and that's because it's it's not easy to trust other people. Because we've been failed so many times. People have, have failed us. When we've put their, our trust and our confidence in them, they failed us. But it should be different with Jesus. There, there should be no problem with us trusting in Him. Have you ever met a, a woman who had been treated badly by her father and then uh, was married and it turned out that the husband was a terrible person what is that woman how does that woman view other men in general perhaps one of you ladies is having coffee with her and because of her experience she sees all men as evil and untrustworthy but you on the other hand you had a great childhood your your father was a good person your husband it couldn't be better and so you try to to comfort her And while you recognize that there are evil, untrustworthy men out there, you you also see great hope for this woman. That that there is hope for her that she can have trust in, in other people. This woman tends to be very reserved. She flinches when you when you go to shake her hand, or she sits in a corner with arms folded not wanting anybody to confront her to be in her personal space. And in fact, she, as she sits in the service, she does not even trust what is being spoken from the Word of God because it's coming from a man who is untrustworthy. And he's probably just up there trying to take advantage of me. Well, there's a reason that we have lack of faith in other people. There's reason that that we fail to trust other people. And the sad part is is that we often are like that woman who has been treated badly. We we treat Christ in the same way often. We fail to put our confidence, our trust completely in Him because we don't count Him as trustworthy. We've been failed by what we thought was His leading and, and so we don't put His confidence in Him. We treat Christ like any other person who has let us down and we don't trust Him. Well, Mark gives for us in this passage a reason that we should trust in Him. And in fact, he tells us why we don't trust in Him. What is our problem? Why do we fail to trust in God? And so let's begin to uh, understand what Mark has for us here by beginning with verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida while He Himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, He left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and He was alone on the land. 
seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Last week I said that the feeding of the 5,000 was one of the most significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The Gospel writers were not the only ones who thought that. Let me have you turn over to John chapter 6 because I want you want you to see what the result was of what we saw last week. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds responded in a certain way. John chapter 6, verse 15. This is immediately following the passing out of all the food and the returning of, of the leftovers. Verse 15, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. John tells us that the people were coming to make Jesus king by force. They saw what he could do. They saw his power and they wanted, probably for selfish reasons, some of them perhaps for for proper and right reasons, they wanted to make him king by force. And Jesus recognized that that was not what was in God's plan for him. But he was not here to set up, he was initially here to set up his kingdom, but when he was rejected, he decided that he was going to withhold that until he comes back during the thousand years, the millennial reign. And so he withdraws. And, and that's what we have here in Mark chapter 6, verse 43. Here's what he does he sends the disciples away, verse 45, and then he goes away to pray, verse 46. So we have the setting of, of this great miracle that we're going to see today. The setting in verses 45 and 46. Jesus' plan here was to meet up with the disciples later, so He puts them in the boat and sends them away so that He can go away to pray. Now the disciples are headed off, as we see in verse 45, to a city called Bethsaida. Um, John records that they were headed toward Capernaum, which is... A, also a city, a coastal city. Uh, it's unclear exactly where this Bethsaida is. It, it may be right near Capernaum, but the point is that they don't make it. We find out that that, that after the storm uh, comes in, in the next few verses, the, it actually pushes the boat south so that they end up, as we see in verse 53, in the city uh, towards the middle of the Sea of Galilee called Gennesaret whatever uh, city they were intended to go to, it's very immaterial to what the point is here of this passage because they don't end up there anyway. Now, Jesus 
seems to be intending the disciples to go away so that so that he can get so that they can get some rest. Remember, they've been out serving and, and doing all this work, and when when they had gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee earlier to get some rest, they were interrupted by all these people who had met them earlier. Remember that we saw that last week, and all these people are there wanting to 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 be healed by these disciples and by Jesus and to hear their teaching. Instead, they, they wait till it's dusk and it's time to eat and Jesus feeds them. So the disciples still haven't had a time to rest. So apparently Jesus is sending them again out in the boat so that they can have time to rest. And it says in verse 45, um, they went to the other side to Bethsaida while He Himself was sending the crowd away. And this is what we saw in John chapter 6. He sends them away because He's not going to let them make Him king by force. Perhaps Jesus was sending the disciples away so that they would not be involved in this this uh, this project or this idea that these people wanted to, to to set Jesus up as king. Perhaps the disciples were were still confused at this time. In fact, I believe they were confused as to what Jesus was coming to the earth to do. And so Jesus probably sent them away also, not just to rest, but also so that they would not get involved in trying to make Jesus king. Now Jesus, He leaves, verse 46, bids them farewell, and He leaves to the mountain to pray. Now the story begins uh, here when they're, set, when they're set out at sea. And in verses 47 through 50, we see what, what's going to take place. This, this incredible event that is often talked about even to this day where Jesus walks on water. But before we can get to the actual event, the, the miracle, we have to see what happens first. And that is that there's a storm here. Verse 47, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and He, Jesus, was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. This suggests that there was some sort of storm. Now, there, it may not have been thunderstorm or something like that, but at the very least, there, was, there were strong winds because the, they were straining at the oars for all this time. And, and we find out how long exactly they were straining at the oars, or at least a general idea, because it says in the middle of verse 48, at about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them. So, you remember what happened earlier to this, and that is that Jesus fed the 5,000, then sent them all away. This is probably sometime in the evening, maybe 6, 7 o'clock in the evening. And now Jesus comes walking to them after they've been on the boat straining against the oar trying to get back to the land. After all this time, it comes to the fourth watch of the night and that's when Jesus comes to them. Now, this was before clocks. So the Jews broke up the evening into four sections or four watches. Each watch contained three hours. So the first watch was between 6 and 9 p.m. roughly and then 9 to 12 p.m., and then 12 to 3 a.m., and then 3 to 6 a.m. They would be able to determine these times based on the, the moon or the stars. Somehow they, they had a way of being able to tell. But they would break it up into watches. Okay, Probably not precise, but at least it was they had an idea of, of where they were with regard to time. And so the disciples had been out there all the way to the fourth watch, which was 3 to 6 a.m., now, you remember, they had, been, they had set out sail the night before. So they had been out on the water for eight to ten hours trying to get across across the uh, the sea there. 
And then all of a sudden, the stranger comes out to them walking on the sea. Verse 48, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Jesus walked on the water. Now, in order to minimize this miracle and say that it was just some sort of providential providential circumstance, some argue that the water was really shallow where he was walking. So it would be like walking on a beach where the water is kind of shallow. And so Jesus is walking on that sort of thing all the way out to the boat. But if that were the case, then the boat would be stuck, would it not? But I think Mark records this miracle not just to show that Jesus has power over nature. That is an important point. Okay, We've been seeing Jesus has authority over all things throughout this book of Mark. But I think Mark gives us a reason why he records this miracle. Why would Jesus come out and walk on the water? In fact, I think Jesus has a reason for doing it. Not to show that he's just a powerful person, but to really to show their lack of faith. Notice the end of verse 48. It says that he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. What is going on here? Why would Jesus want to pass by them? Was he trying to ignore them? What was going on? I think it would be better to understand this by saying that he was intending to pass in view of him or in view of them, so that they could see Him. He intended to pass, we could say, right by them. Right next to them so that they could see Him. Not so that He could go unnoticed, but so that, so that He could challenge their faith. See, He was testing them. Are you going to recognize who I am or are you going to uh, neglect what is going on here? Are you going to be scared? Are you going to lack faith? Well, would the disciples pass the test? That is the question we have to ask. If Jesus is coming in order to test them, not not primarily to show His power, but in order to test them, are you going to believe in Me? Would they pass the test? Verse 49 tells us, But when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. They thought He was a ghost. They were terrified. Verse 50 tells us, they all saw him and were terrified. They were fearful for their lives. Now, when we saw, when we looked at the story of King Herod and John the Baptist, we saw that John the ba- that King Herod also believed in ghosts. He thought that John the Baptist was some ghost that had come back from the grave and was coming to haunt him. And so, this was probably a popular Jewish superstition, which which thought that the appearance of any spirit at night brought disaster. And so the disciples may have thought that they were seeing some sort of water spirit. And so the end of verse 49 tells us that they cried out. This is the, the idea of screaming in terror. It's the same scream that, that we find in chapter 5 with regard to the demoniacs. It's a scream of terror. It's, it's fearful. It's frightening. And really, we shouldn't blame them too much because I don't know that we would do anything different. I mean, think about what they're seeing here. It would have been difficult, first of all, to see because it was dark, right? Three to six o'clock in the morning. It was dark. It's, it's hard to see and trying to make out this image that's coming toward you. So you check with all the other disciples. Are you seeing this or is this just me? And when it's confirmed, 
you certainly would be afraid. And remember, the waves are crashing into the boat and crashing, maybe rising to three to six feet or something. This is a significant storm. And so you have these waves crashing, you have this image coming towards you, and it's even possible that Jesus may have been uh, concealing himself with by hooding himself. We don't know. And you have to remember, too, that they were straining at the oars most of the night. So they were tired. It's hard to, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to, to make rational thoughts when you're tired, right? And so this is what the disciples were going through. And, in fact, they had never seen anything like this in their lives. So if we were in their situation, would we not also be terrified? But instead of Mark sympathizing with them, saying, you know what? That's completely understandable. Okay, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Instead of him sympathizing with them, he actually gives, brings down an indictment on them. We'll get to that here in a minute. But notice what Jesus does in verse 50. He commands them to calm down. Verse 50, For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus calms them down by speaking to them. Don't be afraid. Okay, you lack faith. That's why you are afraid. But if you believed in me, then you would not be afraid. So stop worrying about what's going to happen. I am going to take care of you. Do you realize that when you're staring conflict in the face, Christ desires to speak to you? and to settle you down so that you can recognize that He is in control. Do you realize that? When, when conflict is there and when you've come to a place in your life where, where you've never been, I don't know what's ahead. I don't know what's going to happen with this image coming towards me. I don't know what's going to happen with this cancer or with, this, with, with, this, uh, with not having a job or with, with my spouse being so sick. I don't know what's going to happen. But you know what? Christ desires to speak to you and say, do not be afraid. It is I. Take courage. If I put you out there in that boat, okay, who's the one that sent them out to the sea? Because we could say, well, what if, if the disciples had sent themselves out without Jesus' approval, then they were out there all on their own, and that was their fault, so they deserved it. But who sent them out there? Jesus Christ did. He said, go out into the sea and I'm going to catch up with you later. So Jesus has put you in whatever circumstance that you're in. It may be difficult. You may have never been here before. But does He not have all things under His control? Can He not accomplish His purpose through your difficulty? And this is what the disciples needed to learn. They needed to see that Christ was in control. And they should have responded better. And so we have the resolution to the story in verses 51 and 52. Now, what's interesting here is that there's no mention of Peter walking on the water here. And this is interesting because Mark is really writing on behalf of Peter. Remember, Mark was not a disciple himself. He was not an eyewitness of these events. So he was speaking on behalf of Peter he was a very close friend with Peter, and so he was hearing all these stories. Probably Peter had preached them several times. And yet, Mark doesn't record that Peter walks on the water. Why not? 
Notice Matthew chapter 14, if you would. Matthew chapter 14. And we'll see that this is the very same event because the first thought is, well, if maybe it was a different time. Maybe Jesus had come walking on the water a second time. And that's when Peter came out. But, but what you'll notice, first of all, is that in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, we have the same event that preceded the event we have in Mark. And that is the feeding of the 5,000. And then notice verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. Immediately, He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side while He sent the crowds away. Okay, So that's exactly the same story. Uh, if you read on, you'll find verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them you know, after they were afraid, of course, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. That's exactly the same story that's going on. Now notice, verse 28. Peter said to Him, Lord, if it is You, command Me to come to You on the water. And He said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Okay, so back to Mark chapter 6. Why doesn't Mark record the significant event you would think of all the events in Peter's life, this would have been the most significant. This was something that he could say. Of course, he, he, he casted out demons just like the other uh, disciples were able to do. He, he was able to see people. Or he was able to do miracles uh, by the authority of Jesus Christ, but the other disciples were too. But this was something that, that, that Peter experienced unlike any of the other disciples because they failed in their faith. Peter could have said, look at me. Look what I did. I was the only person other than God Himself to walk on water. But He doesn't. Mark does not record that for us. Perhaps Peter did not want to talk about himself in a way that would lead to exalting himself. He probably didn't want to draw attention to himself. Instead, he wanted to draw attention to the disciples' problem. So that's why I think Mark only records the indictment on the disciples as a whole. Peter could have used this as an opportunity to exalt himself, but instead he, he points the attention to what is most important. That was their lack of faith. Now, why were they so astonished? What, what could they have learned from the loaves? Notice verse 52. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. This was their problem. But, but what could they have done? What could they have possibly learned from the loaves that would tell them that Jesus was not a ghost and they should trust in Him? The problem was that the disciples failed to see Christ for who He was. The implication that Mark is making here is, is very important for our understanding. That is, if they had understood what Jesus had done with the feeding of the 5,000 their hearts would not have been hardened and they would not have been astonished. That is the implication that's made here. Because Mark directly points their astonishment. Notice the end of verse 51. And they were utterly astonished for... The reason for their astonishment is this. They did not gain any insight, any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So what is the reason... That they, didn't, that they were astonished in this situation, that they didn't believe that this was Jesus Christ. 
It was that they failed to reflect on what had just happened. Christ did this great miracle which all the Gospel writers record because of its significance. And they failed to, to reflect on it. They had, they had a significant amount of time between the feeding of the 5,000 and, and now what Jesus is doing, walking on the water here. Obviously they were busy straining at the oars, but, but they had time to reflect on it and they didn't. If they would have thought about what Jesus had done there, Mark implies that they would, have not, they would not have been astonished. And at the heart of their problem, at, at, the, at the base of their problem is at the end of verse 52, Mark tells us, their heart was hardened. Now this is a very strong indictment against the disciples. Turn to chapter 4. Jesus contrasts what the disciples should be understanding with regard to parables and what the Pharisees are actually like. Chapter 4, verse 11, And he was saying to them, Jesus was saying to the disciples, that is, To you, disciples, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. The problem here is that the the uh, Pharisees had hard hearts. They were not willing to listen to what Jesus had to say. They were not they were willing to listen, but not willing to accept it as truth. Now, when when Mark says in Mark chapter six, verse fifty two, that their hearts were hardened, he's not saying that they were stupid. He's not saying that 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 they didn't have enough information. What he's saying is that this term that is most often used for Pharisees, you can see that in chapter three, verse five. It refers to the heart being cold or indifferent to what God is doing sovereignly as witnessed by their, 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 their own eyes. Their hearts are cold and indifferent. They don't recognize what God is doing. It's there in plain sight. Do you see what I'm doing? In other words, their entire orientation was still too restricted. It was too focused on the immediacy of their fears, too limited by their inability to penetrate to the full mystery of who Jesus was and why He came. They didn't see what was going on. And they have this huge incident that we would all look look at and go, what's the problem? I mean, can't you see that God there? Before we condemn them too quickly, we should look at ourselves. Before we become too self-righteous and say we would never be like that, we would reflect on what Jesus had done. We ought to reflect on how easily we forget the Lord's gracious dealings in our lives and how much we we fail so often to reflect on what He has just got finished doing. Both, I would say, in the pages of Scripture and in our own personal lives with regard to the trials that we go through. And then we ought to reflect on how shamefacedly surprised we are when Jesus comes and intervenes once again. Wow! Look what God did here. Why should we be so surprised? The problem is that, that we failed to gain insight from what Christ had already done in our lives. Do you see? We don't reflect on it. We have this, this completed revelation. We have... God providentially working in our own lives and we fail to reflect on it, much like the disciples. And so the conclusion of the matter 
comes in verses 53 through 56. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Jesus is so well known in Galilee that whenever he enters that region, great multitudes gather. And so we see the desire of the crowd that they recognize that Jesus has something that that they could use. And that is, he has the power to heal them. It's very reminiscent of the woman with the hemorrhage who was just willing to touch the edge of the cloak. She had so much faith that if she just touched it, that Jesus had the power to save her. And so we have a summary of of what Jesus was doing throughout Galilee. Verse 56, Whenever He entered villages or cities or countryside, they they were coming to Him. They were trying to get Him to heal them. So the point of this passage, I think, is this. There is a reason that we lack faith. There is a reason that we don't trust God like we should. Okay, we are much like that jilted spouse. Okay, that, that woman who, who doesn't trust any man on the face of the planet. We, we fail to put our trust in Jesus Christ because we don't reflect on, on how trustworthy He really is and how much we can put our confidence in Him so that when He comes in situations where we would not expect Him, we, like the disciples, are completely amazed what is going on here. Who is this? And so I would encourage you with regard to uh, this passage that, that you should... Uh, there should be four things that we should all learn from this. Number one, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If Jesus is truly the promised Messiah, if He enjoys the power He has already displayed... Can, can any responsible disciple, okay, these disciples are us, can any responsible disciple think that, that Jesus is losing control somehow? That, that was really their fear. Hey, we're out in the boat. We're, we're not sure if we're going to make it back to shore. And now, to complicate all things, now there's this image coming towards us. What's going to happen? What if we're all killed? Accidents don't happen to disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? Certainly, we, can't, we have to admit that, that, that we are not exempt from all tragic things that can happen in the world. We live in a, in a vicious, sin-cursed world. But even we must learn in difficult and frightening circumstance, circumstances to trust God's wise providence. That if He put us out in the boat, if He put us out in this circumstance... It seems too impossible. And certainly, He can protect us if that is part of His plan. So there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. The reason that we fear, number two, is that we fail to reflect on what God has done in our lives. Okay, think back to, to how God is, has worked in your life personally. What, what types of things has He done? What, what types of, of ways have you seen His power in significant forms? Have you? Then reflect on those. And recognize how trustworthy your Savior is. Number three, reflect on God's Word. This is probably the most important point that we ought to learn from this. Reflect on God's Word. 
When we reflect on God's Word, we will not be astonished when, when God comes to intervene because we recognize that, that He is in control of all things and that He is right there alongside us the whole time. He's not going to allow something accidentally to happen to us. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And He's leading us in that way. Number four, don't be surprised when God intervenes in your life and provides for you in a spectacular way. Don't be surprised. In other words, don't harden your heart. Don't become so cold and indifferent to what God has done and what God is doing that, that you fail to recognize that He is there. And you know the sad part? We, we, we often bring indictment upon, upon the disciples for their failure to believe in God, for their lack of faith. But do you know, we have even less excuse than they, this side of the cross. They were still putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And they had an excuse. Jesus hadn't given them full revelation of what was going to happen. They were still getting pieces and trying to understand how it was all put together. But we have no excuse. God is giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Why do we fail to put our trust in Him? Why do we fail to put our confidence in the one who has everything under his control? We've seen him do it before, but we're so surprised when he does it again. And I can tell you based on the authority of this passage that the reason that we do is because we fail to reflect on God's word and what he has done in our lives. So it all comes down to you considering what God has done. You can't just walk away here from here and, and, and not reflect on what God has done. It's got to be a regular habit that when you hear the Word of God preached, when you read the Word for yourself, that you reflect it. Re- you reflect on it. Recognize that this is not just meaningless words. This is not just something that we check off our list. Done. Something that we should reflect on and, and allow its truth to grip us. And when we do, we will be unlike the disciples. We will not be surprised when Christ comes to intervene. We will not be shaken when tough times come. We will stand like a rock in the middle of a raging sea. And because our our foundation is firm, we will not be shaken. Will you trust God and His Word that it is all that you need in order to put your confidence in Jesus Christ? Let's bow together for prayer. Our great God in heaven, we exalt You because You are a God who has everything under control. None of Your plans can be thwarted. There is no other God like You. We can't uh, accomplish our own purposes when they are apart from Your plan. All of our purposes must submit to Yours because You will accomplish whatever You please.
But we admit that we fail You at times because we are so focused, like the disciples, on the immediacy of our fears and what is happening around us instead of recognizing what is happening around the entire universe. That You are sovereignly controlling everything and working it out for Your good purposes and so that each of us can be directed toward a Christ-likeness that is unmatched by any worldly person that really is unheard of, unprecedented in many ways. And we fail You because we have hard hearts. We have grown cold and indifferent, much like the Pharisees at times, to what You have for us. And we fail to recognize what You have already done. Sometimes we even go so far to say that You need to reveal Yourself more to us when You've already given us everything we need. And so we ask humbly that You would help us to obey Your leading and to follow wherever You go and that we would recognize that no matter where we are, that You are there and that You are ready to speak to us and to comfort us in our deepest trial and direct us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His great name that we pray. Amen.